Hey everyone, welcome to Danny Chats. This is episode number nine and it's a very special episode because today I'm joined by Dr. Veronica Loy. Hello Veronica, how are you? Hi, great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, good. So whereabouts are you from or calling from? Uh, I'm calling from just north of Chicago, Illinois. I live about halfway between uh, Chicago and Milwaukee in the United States. Oh, nice. And you are a transplant hepatologist, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, nice. So um, what, what made you want to be a doctor in the first place? Is there a time you can remember as a child growing up that sort of influenced you or anything? Um, well, you know, I think I've wanted to be a doctor for as long as I can remember. I was a really active and fairly accident prone child. So <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time in the emergency room and the pediatrician's office. Uh, and just knew that that was what I wanted to do as early as I can remember. Um, and I remember being in a career fair in the third grade and yeah. saying I was going to be a orthopedic surgeon at that time. <laughs> That's the third grade, yeah. So you were set at, you know, you knew from an early age. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem to be the way with a lot of doctors. It's either in the family or as a child, they sort of see something on TV or, as you say, a bit accident prone and then... <laughs> spend time with doctors and that's that's influence them. So um, you specialize in liver, is it liver transplants or liver in general? So I'm a hepatologist with a, but I focus on transplant hepatology. So primarily my patients are people who either may someday need a transplant or recently received a transplant. Okay, and can you just explain to me a bit about what a hepatologist is then? Sure, so a hepatologist, my training was in internal medicine. And then after internal medicine, there's a three-year fellowship in gastroenterology and hepatology, so including all liver diseases. Yeah. And then after that, there's an additional training, additional year to specialize, even more focused in, in transplant hepatology. So that's had, right. Because uh, obviously you might have seen some of my videos. Um, have you heard of Wilson's disease much? Of course, of course. Yeah. 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 I've really enjoyed your videos. It's very eye-opening. Um, my perspective is obviously a little different because I'm so subspecialized. By the time people meet me, um, either they already have their diagnosis or it's very clear to me because I test people right away for Wilson's disease. But hearing some of your guests, it sounds like uh, getting to that diagnosis or to the right physician has been quite a struggle for many people. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the hardest part in some ways for some people. Uh, and it's that most important part as well, because obviously once you get a diagnosis, you can start taking the medication and it can really change your life. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so do you perform operations? I do not. Um, no. As part of my training and I continue to try to make it into the operating room for transplants a couple of times a year uh, as an observation only. I perform endoscopies, like upper uh, yeah. endoscopies, colonoscopies, uh, paracentesis, liver biopsies, but I'm not a surgeon. No, okay. So um, with the, say, like uh, the, um, with the camera down the throat, what's it called again? A Endoscopy. Endoscopy, that's it, yeah. Uh, how do you even practice for something like that? Do you literally just have to go, the first person is a patient, and then that's it, or? <laughs> um... I think these days there are a lot of simulators and yeah. so when you start your training or your fellowship there are sometimes weekend courses um, where 
either use a computer or sometimes they have uh, models that you're actually using the equipment, but not on a human. Yeah. Um, but, but really the majority of the training is right in the hospital, hands-on with a, a senior fellow or a attending physician guiding your way. Yeah. And what's the, because I was talking to somebody who uh, had a biopsy when they were younger and they said they weren't, they, I think they might have been put under a local anesthetic or something, but I'm, I'm pretty sure when I had mine, I was quite heavily sedated. Is that normally the case? I think most everyone's different. Uh, there's two different ways to perform a liver biopsy, either what we call percutaneous or through the side of the abdomen, kind of between the two rib cages or two rib spaces. Yeah. Um, for that, most providers that I know don't use um, IV sedation, just local sedation, yeah. but there are a few that you do. And then other patients have a biopsy completed kind of through the neck here by the radiology department. Really? And that, yeah, and that allows them to measure the pressure across the liver as well. And that people do receive a, a moderate sedation for. Yeah. Because from what I remember of a biopsy is that they put the needle in and the needle, does that take a sliver of the liver out and then they analyze that? That's correct, yeah. yeah. And so I, how with, uh, I think I work with eight hepatologists in my current position and I would say, you know, about half of us still perform the biopsies and those of us who do, about half of those do give IV sedation. So some, I think some physicians do, but I was not one of them. Yeah. At first, did you keep a tally of all the sort of procedures you were doing or and then? Yeah, you're required to um, oh, for right. certifications and things. Um, you really need to have track. And even now, I still keep track because you have to, you know, have a log for maintenance that you're still um, credentialed to perform whatever procedure it is that you'd like to perform. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I've got a list here. Um, it's the first <laughs> one I've done with a list. Um, so, in terms of the liver, um, is it true that you can cut some of it away, like three quarters of it away, and it will regrow instead of having a full transplant if that's needed? Uh, if you have a normal, healthy liver, then yes, that's absolutely true. It's really pretty amazing, kind of like an earthworm. You can literally cut it in half and it will grow back. Um, yeah. That's not true, unfortunately, for people who have abnormal liver, a fatty liver, or um, a really scarred liver like cirrhosis, then unfortunately you really can't regenerate at the same rate. Yeah. But, but people with a normal healthy liver, you're, yes, we remove up to 60 to even higher than 60% of the liver in adult really? living donor transplant. Yeah, it's That's really And from, I read somewhere and I can't remember the exact figure, but it regenerates quite fast, doesn't it? Absolutely. I tell people a month, within a month it should return to normal size, although I think the literature is actually even faster than that. Wow, I thought it was like three months, but yeah, that is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, um, what's the, what do you seem to find the main reason for people needing liver transplants? That's a great question. I think it varies depending on where someone lives. Um, the disease etiologies in different parts of the world are very different. Worldwide, I believe this, the leading indication is still hepatitis B and hepatocellular carcinoma. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, what we see the most of, it's just shifted recently now that we have great treatments for hepatitis C. The main reasons we're seeing in the United States are uh, NASH, which is related to fatty liver, and yeah. 
alcohol-related liver disease, and then still hepatitis C. Those are the leading causes. So, you know, uh, Wilson's disease is, because it's so um, rare in the first place, then to require a transplant for it in comparison to some of these other diseases, it still remains pretty well. Yeah. And does it vary in America from state to state um, on how you are put on a list? Because I know it's sort of done on a score over there. Is that right? Yeah. So, or well, being on the list and then where you where you're placed on the list is based on something called the MELD score. That's and that's the calculation yeah. um, of a series of blood tests. And then that's recalculated at a time interval, depending on how high your score is. If a donor becomes available, then the transplant goes to whomever is, you know, at the highest in their blood type at that time. Yeah. So that's standard across the United States. But unfortunately, there are different regions in the United States where you may get a transplant at a much lower score than others. And they're working, um, even recently, there was a change in the way that the organs are allocated to try to really make it more equitable for people. It's really not uh, fair that depending on where someone lives or where they're put on a transplant list really impacts how soon they might receive a transplant. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. Um, so, um, after a transplant, obviously most people are put on medication. Um, hang on. Sorry. That's okay. I don't mind if you go off the list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so they, you have uh, Advergraft and Prograft uh, tend to be the main two. Um, one's a slow release, one's a fast release. What's the, why, because I'm on um, the Advergraft, why are there two, two sort of medications out there? Why don't they just use a standard one? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of different brand names, but there are either, you know, immediate release or extended release prograph um, pills. I Originally, you know, because every country is different with what's approved, uh, here in the United States, we really were using just the immediate release prograph um, until more recently for kidney transplant the extended releases started to become more in favor. It was approved for kidney transplant. Yeah. And I think the idea of the extended release, which is uh, once a day instead of twice a day. Yeah. Is, uh, and there's a couple of different brands and they, the pharmacokinetic kinetics and the way they're metabolized are a little bit different. But in general, the idea is there should be less of this peak and trough of the bioavailability of the medication because they're taking it once rather than twice a day. Yeah. And then really, I think the main driver for the once a day uh, tablet is compliance um, because people don't always take their medicine and um, it's hard. It's really hard. You know better than me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Take it on a schedule and have your pill box ready and, um, no matter where you are, not to miss a dose. So I think the once a day is certainly more convenient for people. Yeah. Um, so, and what, like, um, I took like steroids and things afterwards. Some people seem to stay on them for quite a while. I was off. Is there a certain reason that people stay on them for longer or is it yeah. just? You know, every reason for transplant kind of requires a different post-transplant course. And so there are certain reasons people receive liver transplant. Um, 
primary biliary cirrhosis, autoimmune hepatitis, things where your own immune system was so active against your liver. And then there's a high likelihood that that will recur after the transplant. So yeah. those people need to stay on higher immunosuppression for longer. And then a lot of people, I'm not sure, um, you know, if this is going on in other parts of the world as much, but a lot of people also receive a kidney transplantaneous simultaneously and kidney transplant does require a longer steroid course. So those are the main reasons. And then of course, people who have had rejection in the past oftentimes stay on a low dose of prednisone for the long haul. Yeah. So the kidney, you say a lot of people end up with kidney, is that kidney failure because of they had liver problems? Is that quite common to obviously have the two? It can be. Um, it is common. And so, you know, the idea for hepatorenal syndrome where the kidneys start to fail because of the liver is if it's really just a short-lived problem, if you replace the liver alone, the kidney should start to work again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if that's a prolonged time or, you know, a lot of our patients have um, other problems like high blood pressure or diabetes that have impacted their kidneys. And so they have other reasons for needing a kidney transplant as well as a liver transplant. And we're seeing more and more people require both at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I obviously know a bit because the, um, the advograph and the prograph are uh, anti-rejection tablets, aren't they? So, and they lower your immune system. So this is for anyone that maybe going on and it doesn't quite understand. Why do you have to lower your immune system? Well, the main reason is to prevent rejection. Um, when transplant first started, uh, liver transplant, the first liver transplant in the United States, there's a great book that it's a little scientific, but um, it's called The Puzzle People, and it's written by the first real transplant surgeon in the United States, uh, Thomas Starzl, you may have heard of. And the first transplants failed because the surgery went great, but then immediately after the surgery, people would reject the organ. Yeah. And really the way that we now have this wonderful potential for life after a transplant is because of developing better and better medicine to prevent or at least minimize rejection. Yeah. Yeah, and that sort of leads me on to another question is, what is the... I mean, how common is it to get a rejection and what are the treatments? Is it easily treated? Because obviously that was something I really worried about. Uh, I'm coming up to a year, but I've seen people been fine for up to three years and then all of a sudden go into rejection. That, <clears throat> excuse me, that's that's a really good question. So if people are taking their medicine, the rates range, you know, I usually say it's between 15 and 25 percent chance for rejection, but some studies actually quote higher than that. Yeah. Um, so there is a, it's a pretty high rate of chance for some rejection. Most rejection is treatable and either mild or moderate. Occasionally we'll see people who are really refractory to the treatment of rejection, but the majority of people I see, as long as you're monitoring closely, and that's why, you know, at, in your first year after transplant, you're probably feeling yeah. a, a bit like a pincushion with labs so frequently, but it's really to catch these things before they get out of control to the point where they're not reversible. Yeah, because I actually booked in for a blood test because of the, the coronavirus and everything. They cancelled my hospital appointment and uh, I think I was about seven months in when they cancelled it and then it's been two months and I haven't had a blood test. So uh, it, just for my own peace of mind, I went and got one at my local doctor's 
Um, yeah, just I mean, I feel fine. I feel great. But there is just like you say, you just got to keep on top of it. And it's it's you know in the back of your head, it's nice just to know that everything's going fine. Yes, you know, you're approaching a year, which is so amazing. I, I remember discovering your uh, Instagram feed right at the time of your transplant. So it's been fun to watch you recover and get back to life. And um, it, I think it is challenging for people to have this strong, um, almost like a stronghold from their medical care team where you're there, you know, once a week and all these blood tests. And then as the appointments and blood tests space out, it's a little unsettling, but certainly at one year, Many of my patients are coming in once every three months for blood work. So I would yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I built up a relationship with my hospital when I was young. I spent a long time there when I was about 14. So I'm, I'm a bit more um, rehearsed in this than some people, if that makes sense. Because obviously some people, they don't, they've never had any medical problems. And then all of a sudden they need a liver transplant. And it's, you know, their first time in hospital. It's the first time having to take meds. Uh, luckily for me, I say luckily, but I've, I've had quite a lot of practice, so it's not not too daunting. That's good. Um, you yeah. were prepared. You had some yeah. training. <laughs> Definitely prepared. Um, what was your sort of, well, if there's one thing that you wish your patients sort of listened to or knew more about, what would that be? You know, for people who are headed in towards transplant, I think so many people, the focus is getting that transplant. Um, and it's understandable because it's such a serious situation that people are in when they're waiting and, and, and a lot of unknowns. And no matter how much time we may try to spend educating and preparing people and their caregivers for what it might be like on the other end of the transplant and that that's really just one one step in this journey and there's still so much um, recovery that happens after the transplant it's really hard to get people to think about that and yeah. i try really hard to talk with my patients about the importance of their physical um, strength and their nutrition and their um, you know just activity before the transplant and how much that's really going to help them in their recovery because when people are so sick, you know, it's hard to stay active. And um, yeah. But the better people are before a transplant, the faster and better they'll get back to the things that they love to do after a transplant. Yeah, I, I tried to stay as active as I could before. It's hard mentally as well because, you know, you sat around just waiting for this call. Uh, I don't know what it's like in the US, but I mean, I got told I couldn't go more than three hours away from home. Um, your life's just put on full hold. So not only have you got that physical side, you definitely have the mental side. And I had to have an assessment as well before um, to see how I would handle it mentally. And I suppose so that they could work out what um, support I needed afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, lack of control of the situation and, and this unknown is really hard. It's really yeah. hard. The other thing I think that is we I think we need to improve on is um, helping support the caregivers. So much focus is really on whomever has the liver disease and, and needs a transplant and receives a transplant. And the caregiver is going through a lot after yeah. a transplant as well. And I think we really need to improve on how we educate and support those people. Yeah, I mean, over here we had um, what they called here, I think it's an educational day. It was at the same time I was going for my tests. 
um, and they just sat you down in a room and they, they talked about everything. Well, I took my parents with me, which for them it was really good. For me, I'd already been told a lot of it by the doctors and stuff, but for them, I suppose, because I don't really talk too much either, I don't tell them anything. So for them, it was really nice to actually have all the information uh, rather than me just tell them a little bit like, oh yeah, I just need a liver transplant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that they got that education. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely think they found that more um, beneficial. But it is good that everyone knows, like you say, that they you, you try to include everyone that's involved in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is probably well. This is something that you may know nothing about, but, um, <laughs> but I, I've seen um, they started doing like 3D printed uh, organs and stuff. Obviously, they're not really using them at the moment, but. What do you, what's your views on that as a future? Because that would be amazing, wouldn't it? If you just it would, didn't. It would be so amazing. Um, several years back, I, we have a, there's a organization called AASLD. And in Europe, there's an organization called EASL. And it's really um, all of the physicians, um, pharmaceutical companies, anyone who's really doing research on liver disease. And once a year, there's a huge convention, which of course this year is probably going to be via Skype right. or something. But, um, and we get together and you read and learn about the research being done all over the world. And at that meeting, maybe three or four years ago, there was a very really amazing hour presentation on 3D printing research being done uh, for liver. I think a lot of the research start is starting, at least in the United States, through the military as ways for wounded soldiers for, you know, limb replacements and things. And the research is so fastly progressing. I don't think that's a word, but you know what I mean. Um, it's just, I think there's a real potential there, but not in, not in the next decade. No, that would be great. Um, just some off the key questions. What's the youngest you've seen someone have a liver transplant? Well, I'm an adult physician, so really the youngest I can see is 18. Um, I do have a lot of patients because one of the really amazing parts of my job is once someone's received a transplant, they're really my lifelong patient, uh, which I love. And as you know, people who receive transplants as babies for maybe bilirubin or some of the genetic forms of liver disease become 18, then they often need to transition from the children's hospital over to me. So I do have a lot of patients that receive a transplant as kids. Yeah. Um, but my patients that I've known prior to their transplant, uh, you know, I think that the youngest I've had is maybe mid-20s. Uh, okay, so to flip that a bit, could you take a liver from someone who's say 80 or 90 and put it in a younger person? Is their liver still going good generally? That's a really good question. So uh, there, we, there are more and more transplants being done with what we call geriatric organ donors, so yeah. 70 or over, and the outcomes have been really good. I think yeah. it really depends on the health of that donor. Um, there's some thought that maybe people should be matched with an older recipient, just, you know, logically. But at the moment, you know, if you need a transplant, you need a transplant. And so we don't want to put too many criteria on matching. But yes, we do accept livers from people. I mean, I, I'm not sure about 90, but um, yes. if, if the organ is healthy, then yeah. I have it. Nice. 
Um, so what's the, the eldest sort of person or the longest uh, uh, transplant person you've wait, worked with? Because obviously for me, uh, the worry was how long will this new liver last? Will it be five years, 10 years? But I've spoken now to people that are, you know, 30, 30 years in, maybe more. So that was obviously quite inspiring and nice to hear. So yeah, what's the, the longest? Oh my goodness, decades, decades yeah. and decades and decades. Uh, again, I think it depends on the reason someone needed a transplant. So many causes of liver disease recur after a transplant. For example, hepatitis C, it used to really be expected that maybe 10 years after a transplant, you would need another. But now we have great medicine for hepatitis C. So, um, you know, the virus doesn't necessarily need to recur in the new organ. And so those people should go on to live a normal life. Uh, diseases like Wilson's disease are among the rare types that don't recur after transplant. Yeah. And so um, I see people 40 years or more after a transplant doing great. Yeah, I don't know whether you'll know the answer to this, but the Wilson's disease is genetic, yeah? So how comes uh, when they take the liver out that the new liver is fine, but it's still in your genes and in your genetics, Wilson? <laughs> I think that's too complicated of a question for me. Yeah. No, um, it's really, I'm not sure I can explain it eloquently. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a random question. Um, so uh, I think that's most of them off the list. Is there anything that you really wanted to add or to talk about? Um, like I say, to let people know. Do you have over here with my uh, medication, so they told me the side effects, um, diabetes, uh, cancer. So do you advise everyone over there to wear sort of 50, 50 sunblock and obviously you've got to try and eat well anyway, but. Yeah, I think the main three things that once, you know, that first several months of post-transplant recovery, then the gears kind of shift at, for me, trying to help my patients prevent problems that really are related to needing that long-term immunosuppression. Yeah. And so the three things I'm always focused in on are cancers and skin cancer being the most common. So we do an annual skin check and then I tell my patients, I don't get specific on SPF, but I tell them every visit, they are probably tired of hearing it, but I say, you know, you need to always have sunscreen on, be in the shade, wear a hat. And yeah. Um, and then, of course, other cancer screenings that are needed, like colonoscopies and things. Um, and then the other thing that people maybe don't doesn't get as much attention as it should is this increased risk for heart disease and stroke. And so people who start to gain a lot of weight, especially abdominal fat, after yeah. a transplant, I'm really focused in on helping them try to not, not put themselves at risk by staying active and, and keeping the weight off. Yeah, so this um, so we've done the bad bits, but after a liver transplant, is there? I mean, this you can pretty much do whatever you like, though, can't you? I mean, uh, as long as you're fit enough, like you can go and play sports again, you can, yeah, what, you can go to theme parks, you can go swimming, mm -hmm. you can do all of that, can't you? Yeah, I think at the you know when you're on the higher levels of immunosuppression right after the transplant, certainly there are a lot of restrictions. I'm sure you remember, but. As people get further from their transplant and start to recover, I mean, I have patients who ran a marathon a year after their transplant. Their yeah. Olympic 
Olympic athletes, uh, people have kids. I, I, yes, I think that the whole purpose of doing this and going through what you went through and others that are listening uh, went through is to get on to this new, new normal for you and live a long, happy life and do whatever you're passionate about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's great. That's so nice. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. And thank you for your podcast, because I think it helps us as healthcare providers as well. People talk, um, you know, we ask questions, but I'm really enjoying hearing your guests and, and their experiences. Yeah, the idea behind it was obviously because it's so varied and liver disease in general is so varied. that It's nice just to hear everyone's story and uh, like you say, just gives everyone that bit of information. Because someone might hear my story, but it might not really relate to them, even though they've got Wilson's. So, it's, yeah, it's nice to share all the different types. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'll say Absolutely. goodbye now. Have a great day. Thank you.